So our scripture text this morning is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, and we're going to look specifically at verses 1 to 8. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, I'd encourage that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, there are blue Bibles in the chair racks if you want to turn directly there. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 starts on page 1257, so you can go right there. Now, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and you look at verse 1, uh, then what you will see is the very first word of 1 Thessalonians 4 is the word finally, which might make you think that like, oh, we're done. Actually, though, um, it's not so much an end uh, to the letter here as it is a transition uh, from the beginning of the letter to what really are the main points of the letter. It's similar to how Paul works sometimes in, um, in other letters. The finally is really uh, more of like, a, and now to the main point, right? So f- like finally, at last we're there. Here, here, we, here we go. Uh, which means that really what Paul has been doing and what we've been doing since September in chapters 1 through 3 is really given the essential context for what's going on now in chapters 4 and 5. Right? Now, just now, after that foundation of what a Christian is and what a church is and how we're to treat one another and what the gospel is, all those things, now in verses 4 and 5, he's getting to the specific issues and the specific questions in Thessalonica. Now, what are those issues? Well, there are three that we're going to be talking about over the next, you know, number of weeks as we finish this letter. Three very practical areas of living for the Thessalonians. But they are also three very practical areas of living for all of us, right? Sex, work, and the end of the world, right? You hear that? That's what chapters four and five are about. Sex, work, and the end of the world. Nothing big, just that, right? Now, this week, let's start with the first one, with with sex. That's what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Now, let me ask you, as we read this, let me ask you to stand, um, because we're going to read this, and this is the word of the Lord, and we stand, if we're able, as a a show of respect, when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord, and I'm going to invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what, the, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So a few weeks ago, I, uh, my, a friend of mine uh, asked me for a book recommendation, something to read about Christianity. You know, I've been talking about it. Um, and I recommended, he's read some other books that I recommended to him. I said, have you ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Oh yeah, I love C.S. Lewis, Narnia, all that. I said, why don't you read Mere Christianity? We'll talk about it. So I reread Mere Christianity. Um, and in Mere Christianity, there is a section on Christian virtues, on Christian behavior. Right? And the chapter, one of the chapter in there on, um, on sexual morality C.S. Lewis says that, um, that this topic is the most unpopular of all Christian virtues, the Christian understanding of sex. This is what he says. He says there's no getting away from it, what, what, it, what the Christian virtue of, of, of sexuality is. He says there's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either in marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. 
That's what he says. Now, he was writing 80 years ago. And even then, he said, right, this is so difficult, so contrary to our instincts, that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it is now, has gone wrong. One or the other. It's only those two choices. Now, Lewis could have been writing in 2023 instead of in 1943 when he, when he says that. Or he could have been writing in the first century to the Thessalonians. Because the tension between the Christian view and understanding of sexuality and the cultural view of sexuality is very similar. That tension is very similar today as it was in the first century, as it was in 1943. Because whether you're talking about the modern world or the ancient world, the sexual ethic of Christianity just often seems to be completely out of step with a popular view. Now, the difference, of course, is that in the 20th and the 21st centuries, a Christian view of sexuality is considered to be radically old, right? Hopelessly out of date, right? It's just radically old. Now, in Paul's day, the Christian view of sexuality was considered still radical, radically new, right? Dangerously disruptive, right? And, and that's, where, that's where we want to start, right? Paul's day, Paul's world. That's where we are. That's what this text is about. Right? Now, it's not going to be hard, though, to make um, to, make, to make connections and stuff to our own world as we go through. Now, before we get started, right, just, just one comment. I want, I want to talk to the kids. I always try to address the kids and stuff when we, when we preach. I want to talk to the kids. When I say sex or when I say sexual intimacy, right, and what I'm talking about is the physical closeness between a man and a woman that God wants them to have when they're married. Right? The physical closeness between a man and a woman that God wants them to have when they're married. And when you're living in this world that you live in, you're going to hear people talking about that, talking about sex. You're going to hear that word a lot. You're going to hear it all the time. And most of the time, when you hear that word, they're, going to, they're not going to be talking about it in that way, in the way that I just defined it. Right? They're not going to be talking about it the way God does. They're not going to be talking about it as beautiful and as good as God intends it to, to be. So it's important for you to know that the Bible talks about sex, and it talks about sex a decent amount, right? In sometimes ways that will surprise people. And it's important for you to know that when you have questions about sex, right, even, even questions, maybe that's something I say, I say this morning, right, that the best place to go with those questions is to your parents or to other trusted Christians who will answer those questions based on what the Bible says, right? Now, that's true for everyone in all of our questions about sex, but I wanted specifically to talk to you, to the kids first, right? Now, to all of us, right? Let's look more closely at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, and let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's talk about Let's talk about sex, right? And, and, and there's an outline in your bulletin that I want you to follow. You can see it there. Four points about Christian sexuality. Look at the outline there. Right? The goal, number one, the goal of Christian sexuality, the authority for it, the seriousness of it, and the power to follow it. The goal, the authority, the seriousness, and the power. And now I'm actually, just fair warning, I'm going to spend significantly more time on the first point, the goal of Christian sexuality, because that's where I actually think most of the confusion is for people, even among Christians, right? So that's, that's what we're going to do. That's the, that's the outline. Now, let's start with the goal, right? Let's start there uh, where we're going to spend most of our time. Look at this passage. What does Paul say he wants for the Thessalonians? Look at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. All right, what's he asking? What's he urging? Right? Well, the first thing he wants them to do, it says, verse 1, to walk and to please God, right? They ought to do that. That's what he says. Now, it's not a new urging. This isn't something that he hasn't urged them to do before. He says, you received this from us already. But what we want you to do is we want you to do it more and more. That's what he says in verse 1. Now, at this point, he hasn't even brought up sex. 
hasn't even, hasn't even, hasn't even brought up the, the, the topic. But we know, that has, we know that he has at least that in mind because he gets quickly to that in verse 3. But for now, what he's doing is he's laying down a principle that is a Christ, a, a, an absolutely essential foundation for the goal of Christian sexuality. Because you notice, he's talking about pleasure here. Right? And he's saying that the ultimate goal in all of life but it's true about sex. The ultimate goal in all of life is not to seek your own pleasure first or even the pleasure of another person, but the pleasure of God. You ought to walk and to please God. Now, that doesn't mean that your own pleasure doesn't matter. It doesn't actually even mean that you shouldn't seek your own pleasure. What it means, though, is when you seek your own pleasure first, you're actually not seeking your greatest pleasure. C.S. Lewis, again, here, I got to go back to C.S. Lewis. Here's something he said um, in an essay that he wrote. Now, not many people have read the essay, but, but you may have heard the quote. This is what Lewis says. He says, if there lurks in the modern minds the notion, the idea, that to desire our, our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of our own good, if there, lur- if there lurks in the modern mind a notion that seeking our own good is a bad thing, And he says, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and from the Stoics. In other words, from the modern and from the ancient philosophers. That's where it's coming from. He says, and it is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering uh, nature of the rewards that are promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and with sex and with ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're acting like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. In other words, what Lewis is saying is that when we settle for sex on the world's terms, we don't actually get the greatest enjoyment out of it. Because by seeking to please ourselves first rather than seeking to please God, we end up with far less than what God actually intends. And that's because all of earth's pleasures, including sex, are to be experienced and and are to be experienced to the greatest degrees only when they are experienced as derivatives from the pleasure that we find first in God. Right? That's what Blaise Pascal said. Now, Blaise Pascal, he's an old guy, actually maybe more famous to some because of his mathematics than his theology, but he was a, theolo- a theologian too. This is what Blaise Pascal said. He said that all humanity, every human, tries in vain to fill the emptiness that they feel inside themselves, to fill it from all of his surroundings. In other words, we try to fill our emptiness with all the derivative pleasures, like sex, But, Pascal says, it's not going to work. He says they're all inadequate because the infinite abyss, the infinite abyss of our hearts, the hole in the emptiness, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. In other words, there's more to what Paul is urging about Christian sexuality, but there's not less than this. Pleasing God must be our greatest pleasure because only in pleasing God will we ever experience pleasure in its totality as God intended for us to experience it? That's where we start. The goal of Christian sexuality is true pleasure. Now, but let's be a little bit clearer about Christian sexuality because Paul is also urging some specifics here as well. Look at verse three. He states it about as plainly as he can. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
right? In other words, okay, here's what God wants you to know. This is his intended goal for you to grow more and more in your relationship with him, right? That's what sanctification means, the process of being made more and more like God, more and more perfect. And God, and and Paul here provides different parts to that, different sub-goals of how that that sanctification process happens. Now, listen, listen, we read this before, but listen to verse three again to the middle of verse six and watch, listen as I read it again, for the that's, the that's that come, right? He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then verse four, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Okay, the, the, now here, so this is where we get more specific. So, so if pleasing God is the overall goal of Christian sexuality, then here are the specifics. Here's where Paul gets specific. He says, first, abstain from sexual immorality. Now that term, sexual immorality, it's actually a pretty common term in the New Testament, and it is the preferred translation of the Greek word porneia. And you might recognize the root word there, right? It's where we get the word pornography. And porneia is not, is, is not a complicated word to say it, but it is a very difficult word to translate into English with just one word. Because it's a pretty broad term that actually includes in it any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Right? Including those things that are often listed separately in different parts of the, the Bible. So porneia, sexual immorality, would include things like adultery. It would include things like homosexuality. It would include things like sex before or outside of marriage. It would certainly include things like rape and incest, things like that. All those things would be included in this term. And Paul is saying abstain from that. Now, abstinence, abstain, that's a negative word. I mean, in a technical sense, it is. It's not, it, it shouldn't be bad, but it is a negative word, right? It is saying not to do something, right? That's so to abstain from something is to not do something, which immediately in our culture causes people to get upset because, wait, who, who are you to say that I can't do something? Right? It's a limitation on my, on my freedom, right? And freedom, I mean, that's a high virtue of our, of our world today. And Paul just compounds the idea, the problem, when he says that each Thessalonian should know how to control his own body and not act in the passion of lust like those who don't know God, right? You see it again, self-control. Again, there's a dirty word to, to a lot of people because it's, it sounds like a limitation of my, of my freedom, and it is, in a sense. But here's my question. Is it ultimately, right? Are they? Are, are abstinence and self-control, are they restrictions of freedom, ultimately, or are they actually paths to a true and greater freedom? Right, think about this for a second, right? Athletes know this. Athletes understand this. When a professional athlete does something difficult and hard with grace, right, and ease, and it just looks effortless, right, there is a freedom that it looks like they're experiencing, and they are, right? You watch some amazing athletic, uh, some amazing athletic feat, and you don't say, oh, they look so constrained. No, you say they look so free, so natural, but see, that kind of freedom, that doesn't come without prior, and a lot of it, prior constraint and limitation, right? One doesn't get to enjoy the pleasure and the freedom of running around the bases after hitting a home run in front of 45,000 people, right? Or, or, or the freedom of landing a double back handspring off of a balance beam, or the freedom of a graceful diving catch for a touchdown in the end zone. You don't get that without first making decisions, lots of decisions that ironically restrict your freedom. All for the goal of a greater freedom that is only on the other side of that restriction. Do you see? 
Now, if that's true for an athlete, then it's actually equally, if not more true, for sex. Instead of freeing us, which is what the promise of, uh, 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 the false promise our world makes about sex, right? right? Instead of, instead of giving, prom- giving us freedom, sexuality without control actually becomes our master. It enslaves us. Promises freedom, but brings mastery. Now, let me just pick one example, right? I talk to guys regularly about this. Any guy in this room who is struggling with pornography, looking at images, sexual images and stuff that are inappropriate, right? Anyone who is struggling or who has struggled, and just about everyone, every guy in this room fits one of those two categories to one degree or another, right? Anyone who knows that will tell you about the power of that, of that particular uh, sin to enslave right? and this is the irony in this case because pornography is attractive whether consciously or or subconsciously because it promises control right promise the viewer the user right the and particularly in the internet age with ai and all this kind of stuff right the user defines the experience and yet what promises control so quickly takes it away Right? So that someone who was originally just planning to check their email for a minute is now spending hours sitting in front of their phone. Right? That which promises you control and freedom becomes a master that you can't disobey. And you're not free. You're a slave. You see? The goal of Christian sexuality through self-control is actually the road to true freedom, to true mastery. Now, it's also true justice, right? So if it is true pleasure, if it is true freedom, it is also true justice. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not primarily motivated by pleasure, right? Maybe you're not primarily motivated by, by freedom. Maybe you're primarily motivated by a concern for other people, right? You, you want justice. Well, look at verse 6. Paul says, listen to my instructions about sexuality because I don't want anyone to, listen, transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Right? You see what Paul's doing here? He connects the goal of Christian sexuality to a concern for others, protecting others, particularly other Christians, right? That's what brother would imply here, which is interesting, right? Because, because justice and concern for others, those are often words that you hear people saying should lead us to, a, um, to, to letting people just do whatever they want sexually, right? If you love them, just let them do whatever they want. Let, I mean, let them go. That's, that's real love, right? They say if you want to love others, you need to let them do as they please, Right? To tell them uh, that some kind of behavior is, is wrong, it's, it's, just, it's just harming them. Right? That's what people would say. But see, if you really understand the Christian sexual ethic, then you need to understand that it's urging people to restrain and to abstain from sexual immorality. Right? You need to understand that message was revolutionary in the ancient world in Paul's day, not because of how it harmed people, but because of how it protected people particularly women and children, protected them from harm. This was, very practically speaking, a doctrine of love and compassion. Go back to verse 1. Remember who Paul's talking to here. Paul says, finally then, brothers. Now, many of your Bibles will see, they'll they'll, they'll footnote brothers here, and it happens several other times in in this letter and throughout Paul's letter. They'll put a footnote there reminding you that this Greek word translated brothers was commonly understood to refer to women as well as to men. It was a universal term, men and women, brothers and sisters. It was an inclusive term. And in most cases, it's a very helpful footnote to remind people that women were not being left out of the conversation. Look, it's kind of saying like, hey guys, just so you know, this term would have meant to include women as well. 
But the very radical thing about using the term here in 1 Thessalonians 4, in this discussion about sexual self-control, the radical thing here is not that Paul is also speaking to women. The radical thing here is that Paul is also actually speaking directly to men. Absolutely radical in the pagan Greco-Roman world to tell men, men, that they had to restrain themselves sexually except with one woman. It might have been expected to say this to women. I mean, you might have expected that, right? You know, to, to limit their sexual experience, but not men. Because any man with any kind of status in, in the Greek and Roman culture, right, they commonly had at least three different kinds of relationships for expressing themselves sexually. Did you know that? Right, there was, of course, the wife, the gyne in Greek, this was the respectable woman. Her job was to bring status to the husband, to bring money through a dowry to the, uh, to, to the, to the family, to manage the household affairs, to, to produce legitimate heirs, right? That was her role. There was also the mistress, though, the hytera in Greek. She was the companion, right? She would have been beautiful, but it would have been more than about the, the, just the physical thing with her, right? This would have been an elect, intellectual, emotional companion for the, for, for the man. See, the wife was necessary. The mistress was interesting, she was the one the husband actually enjoyed being with. Right? Then, of course, there was the concubine, the palake in Greek. Right? And this was the woman that the man had sexual relations with all the time. She wasn't a source of respectability like the wife. She wasn't a source of emotional companionship like the mistress. She was really just a, you know, a playmate. Right? Those are the three kinds of companions for Greek men. And, and in steps Paul. <laughs> and, in, and in steps Christianity to say to the Christian men, no way. The violence that you are doing to image bearers of the living God is unacceptable and cannot continue. He says that there's only one appropriate way to think of sexuality, and that is to find all of those things, the mother of your children, your best friend, right, your, 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 your sexual partner, find all of those things in one woman, a woman to whom you have committed yourself in a covenant bond for life. Is it any wonder that the women of the world, of the ancient world, flocked to this message? Right, because Paul was telling men to stop tearing women into pieces. Stop doing violence to women by separating them into different parts. Incubator over here and, and companion over here and toy over here. Stop, stop ripping them apart. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying that not following a Christian view of sexuality is to do wrong to another person. Any type of sexual relationship without total life, commi uh, total life commitment is violence. Because intimacy, when it's just physical, when you just separate that out, is completely destructive because it, it, it rips apart a person. We all know that. I mean, even, even, in, even in shadows in the world in which we live, right? What makes rape so psychologically damaging, more so than, than, than any other kind of assault? What makes, what makes the abuse in a sexual way a greater violation of trust than any other kind of harm, right? Those are criminal acts, you say. Okay, fine. What makes ending a relationship so much more emotionally painful when you have had a sexual relationship with that person. Right? Why is having an extramarital affair the hardest thing to forgive in a marriage and, and, and one of the only grounds that Jesus allows for divorce? Right? Why? Because in every instance, because contrary to God's design, physical intimacy is ripped and separated from whole life intimacy. And so you have this tearing of the person's self, this ripping of body from soul. True love and compassion is found in the Christian ethic, just like true freedom, just like true pleasure. 
Now, I told you this point would take the longest, and even then I don't have enough time to, to talk about everything that could be discussed there, right? But do you see? The goal of Christian sexuality, it sounds initially negative, but it is supremely positive. True pleasure, true freedom, true justice. It is a goal that is bigger than anything the world offers when it comes to sex. Because the Bible alone recognizes that sex is inherently about more than just a physical act. It's about the uniting of oneself to another person. It is a much more magnificent view than anything the world offers. Now, we can't just stop there, though. The last three points, though I will move more quickly through them, they're absolutely essential. Right? Paul gives us the goal of Christian sexuality, but he also gives us the authority for it. Now, in other words, Paul's not making this stuff up. Right? It's not his view that he is urging here, right? Look at the passage. Just trace this through with me real quick. Verse 1, Paul is urging them in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 kind of drives it home. The instructions, right? Literally the marching orders Paul is giving them are through the Lord Jesus. In other words, this wasn't some new teaching from Paul. Jesus had spoken to this clearly taught in his ministry how marriage was designed to be the place where between one woman and one man in a lifeline, a lifetime partnership, sexuality was to be expressed. Right? Then verse 3, look, for this is the will of God. Whose will? Paul's will? Not ultimately, God's will. Right? Verse 7, right? who has called us to live in holiness and not in impurity? Is it Paul? No. What does verse 7 say? It's God. Right? Finally, verse 8, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Paul says, look, if you, really want to ignore this, if, if you really want to ignore this, it's not really me you're ignoring here. Not really me. It's God you're ignoring. You see the point? Pretty clear, right? Now, two practical applications, right? First, very practical, right? This is good encouragement to, to us that when we're talking about the Christian sexual ethic, it's not really a personal opinion that we're offering. And if someone rejects it, right, don't take it personally. Even if they try to take it, make it personal, right, it's not really you they're rejecting, it's God they're rejecting, right? That's one application. Now, secondly, and more importantly, this is a necessary reminder for all of us that all of the practical benefits of Christian sexuality, right, and I spent a lot of time pointing some of those out. For all the practical benefits, Christians do not follow a biblical view of sexuality because it's practical and beneficial, right? It is, but we follow a biblical ethic of sexuality because it is from God. There are practical benefits, and I could go through even more statistics and studies right, for a long time. It's better for personal happiness. It's better for sexual enjoyment. It's better for women. It's better for men. It's better for children. It's better for society. The data points and, and, and supports all of that. But the practical benefits of biblical sexuality are only true because biblical sexuality comes from the very character and the very design of God. He is its authority. The principle of abstaining from sexual immorality, the practice of singular lifelong exclusivity is a signpost that points us to the character of God and how he relates with his people. Right? God exists and has existed in all eternity in an exclusive, committed relationship between persons. And the relationship that he has formed with his people is portrayed throughout the Bible as a marriage relationship. One that is intended for fidelity and the breaking of that relationship between the people of God and God himself over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures is described as adultery. Right? Which is why, and this is point three, why it's so serious that, we, that when we disregard a Christian view of sex, sexuality. Right? That's point three, the seriousness of it. Because if the practical benefits, if the practical benefits were the primary reason to adopt it, Right, to adopt this view, well, then, then disregarding Christianity would be, um, uh, it would be sad. 
right? You wouldn't be as happy. I would make that case. I've tried to make that case, right? Practically speaking, it's better, right? You wouldn't enjoy life as much. Your children wouldn't grow up with the stability, the safety they deserve, right? Human beings would not enjoy the, the protection of whole life oneness the way that they were intended. It would be sad. It would be really sad, but it would just be temporarily sad if that's all it was. But if the character and the command of God are actually the primary reason to adopt a Christian view of sexuality, then we aren't just talking about temporal happiness and well-being. We're talking about eternal happiness and well-being. We already looked at some of the passages, but if, if rejecting this is rejecting God, if it's disregarding the Holy Spirit, then this is serious business that we're talking about. This is not just some peripheral issue off to the side, some sort of little, you know, kind of fun debate to have or whatever. No, this is, this is central. Paul says it in verse 6 that the Lord, right, to those who would disregard his instructions, the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In other words, if God is married to his people, and that's the imagery the Bible gives us, then adultery on our part, unfaithfulness to God our husband, is grounds for divorce. Just grounds. Just grounds for God breaking his marriage covenant with, with us, which makes this somewhat scary then, given our history and our struggles with living out holy sexuality, right? What are we to do? I mean, it presents us with an enormous problem. If it is this serious, if it's not just some like, oh, well, that's a little problem. No, if this is really this big of a problem, right? Point number four. We've seen the goal of Christian sexuality, the authority for it, the seriousness of it, but we desperately need the power to follow it. It's no small insignificant thing that Paul is asking and urging them in the Lord Jesus to do here. It, it, it's, and it's no small and insignificant thing that he says that it is in the Lord Jesus I am asking you and urging you to do this. Right? It's not just, not just when he says that. It's not just in the authority or in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus I give you this command. No, it is, it is I urge you to do this in the Lord Jesus. He even notes to them in verse 8, this is the God who has given them the Holy Spirit. It's very significant because our source of rescue and redemption from sexual brokenness and from sexual sin, from spiritual adultery is only to be found in the Lord Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, I know I'm, I, I'm running long, but this is, this is essential. There are very few areas of life where people have been so shattered by the consequences of rebelling against God's design where the tendency towards despair is deeper than it is with sexual brokenness. Very few areas that can even begin to compare to the brokenness associated with this particular area of struggle. I don't know your situation, but I do know personally the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Now maybe you're asking if a commitment to the Christian view of sexuality, right? Even if, even if you want it, maybe you're asking, is it even possible with the desires that I feel? Right? Maybe you wonder if your addiction to pornography or to other sexual behavior is even achievable given the number of times you've failed. Right? Maybe you desire to help someone else and you don't even know where to begin. Maybe you're asking if the things that you have done could ever be forgiven if they were known by anyone else, even maybe in your mind if they were known by God. Maybe you're questioning whether the overwhelming stigma of shame for things that have been done to you by someone else can ever be removed and the hole in your heart ever be filled. 
I don't have a simplistic answer to give you, but I do have an invitation to extend. Surrender yourself to Jesus and he will never abandon you. I'm not trying to over-sexualize this when I say it here, but it is God who gives us the metaphor of Jesus as the perfect, eternally faithful husband. Go home and read Ephesians 5 and start with verse 22. Go home and read Revelation chapter 21 and start with verse 1. And you will see Jesus the husband pursuing deep intimacy like a husband with his wife, deep intimacy with the church, with with, 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 with his bride, with you, if you surrender yourself to him. Jesus desires his bride so much that he lays down his life for her. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless right didn't you see that's what paul that's the goal paul's going for in first thessalonians 4 same goal sanctification holiness blamelessness that's what he's telling that's what he's urging them to do and that's exactly what jesus has done for us when we fail at being blameless who will do it who will sanctify us who will clean away the spots it's jesus and it's because he never failed to give his life fully and totally to us right like the intention for se- for sexual intimacy that paul's talking about here in first thessalonians 4 right jesus didn't get ripped though he didn't just give part of himself for you he gave his all he gave his whole life he gave it and he gave it for you years ago a woman in her early 30s uh, called dr harry schomburg he had a counseling practice he specialized in this particular area of struggle And she called his practice and she described to him her history of sexual brokenness, the years of relationships with men who simply used her. And she asked with tears, do you think that it is possible for someone who will have sex with me to also really love me? Look, you may never actually experience sexual intimacy in this life. It might not be for you because the Lord hasn't opened marriage to you. Or maybe because you make a decision to submit your sexual behavior to the Lord and to his, res- his restrictions. But I want you to hear this. Ultimately, you lose nothing that you won't gain a billion times over in Jesus. And I'm not trying to make this like weird. I'm not saying Jesus is going to have sex with people. I'm, I'm saying that the biblical imagery here is clear. That Jesus, in Jesus, we have a faithful lover who will provide intimacy and pleasure and joy with a degree of experience that that any sexual relationship can only point to as a simple sign. Right, To, to use a different image, Jesus is the Rembrandt and sex is just a simple little stick figure on a piece of paper. So the answer to that tearful woman is yes. The answer to you and to me is yes. Yes, it is absolutely possible to have someone who will love you fully, to love you totally, to love you forever. Someone who died to make you pure. Someone who can renew and redeem all of your desires and it will provide you the power to pursue obedience in the area of sexuality. That person, that husband, that lover is Jesus. And he offers us true pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the fulfillment of our greatest desire the source of our greatest pleasure, the truest freedom we could ever want found in the restrictions that you lovingly place around us 
for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to walk in them and to see you as the source of them. Help us to struggle mightily, to fall as we fall forward into your forgiving arms, into the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit who progressively can change our hearts and lead us to obedience and to the place where you desire us to be in your eternal dwelling forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.